This morning, uh, Mark chapter 2, let's just get into it, starting in verse 13. Then Jesus went out to the lake shore again and taught the crowds that were coming to him. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at his tax collector's booth. Follow me and be my disciple, Jesus said to him. So Levi got up and followed him. Later, Levi invited Jesus and his disciples to his home as dinner guests, along with many tax collectors and other disreputable sinners. There were many people of this kind among Jesus' followers. But when the teachers of religious law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with tax collectors and other sinners, they asked his disciples, Why does he eat with such scum? In such kind words. When Jesus heard this, he told them, Healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners. This passage has been a game changer for me in my journey with Christ. I had, growing up, I just had this super strong frustration with people who claimed to know this one who spoke about love, yet did not love in the way of the one they claimed to know. And what was amazing to me about that is because I had been reading the scripture, I had been going, okay, if Jesus is who he is, you have to show me that you're different than the church. That's really what I asked. When I was in high school, I had this view of the church, and I said, Jesus, if you are different, I need you to show me. Because what I see does not reflect it. And I've been reading scriptures like when the woman breaks into this dinner and she starts weeping at Jesus' feet and washes his feet. And Jesus says, she loves me much because she's been forgiven much. And so my natural thought process was, well, then all these people who claim to be Christians obviously didn't have anything to be forgiven of because they don't love anybody. That's really what I started walking around doing. I was like, man, am I just messed up? Am I just so broken and screwed up that I just don't fit the mold? I can't be a part of the church? Can I not do those things? Can I not be a part? Can I not walk in the midst of? Because all these people, they must be perfect because they're really mean. <laughs> like that's really where I landed. And so the scripture really began to, to shape my view of two questions. And they're two questions that I always go back to because we live in a day and an age where these two questions are always going to be boxed around, whether it's popular opinion or culture says or whatever. Even from pulpits, these two questions will be skewed in many ways. And those two questions are, what did Christ come into the world for? And who did Jesus come for? Two questions that I go back to regularly when I start to feel the weight or guilt or shame or condemnation or I start to see other opinions or views or ideas of Jesus starting to be expressed. Those are two questions that I have to go back to and allow him to answer through his word. Now, if you were to ask those two questions, you would have preconceived ideas. If you were to ask anybody out on the streets or even in the church, you would get a um, myriad of answers. You'd get a plethora of answers, if you will. The question of what Jesus came to do, people might give you. Be a good example. Show us how to live. Tell people how to live good lives. Enlighten us. Drop some knowledge. Teach us the way of nonviolence. He came to cause a stir. Tell us to behave because God, He is watching. That's what He will say. That's what people will say. God is watching, look busy. So, but he also, if you were to ask the question, who did Jesus come from, who did Jesus come for, you might get a various response as well. He came for good people, people who have it together, well-behaved people wanting to be better-behaved people, 
religious people, but, but I'm spiritual, so it doesn't, not, not for me, because it's religious people that he came for. But if you were to ask the average American about church or the people of God, the, the, they, they might respond in this way. He came for people who might not have everything in order, but they're pretty close. Like that's typically going to be the response you hear from people. There are many who believe that church is a place for good people to go to learn to be gooder. It's just out there. And unfortunately, it tends to be the pattern that the church has set. Because you don't hear a lot about Jesus and what he's done. You hear about who we are and what we do. And unfortunately, churches were meant to be lighthouses for people who are sick to make their way to the healer. Now, Mark captures for us some instances that are not isolated, but from what we can gather about the Gospels, this was very much a typical example of the mission of Jesus. Typically, we can spend a lot of time considering um, how messed up Levi was. Levi, later, his name was, was called, called Matthew, just so we understand. We're talking about the same one. So if I say Levi and say Matthew, I'm talking about the same person. Now, some of you hear the letters IRS and your blood begins to boil. Like, just, you, just the mention of those three letters in that particular order causes you to go, don't say it again. Do not talk about it. Now, you'd have to take this feeling and amp it up giant amounts to understand people's hatred for Matthew and who he was and what he did. Now, there's a scene from a movie, and I have to show it to you because this is how my brain works, and I want to let you in on my brain. As I'm reading it, this story this week over and over and over, this is the face that I kept seeing. But I have to imagine that this character's lack of uh, empathy for people, his desire to be smug towards others, his desire not to help, really would have been probably more in line with the character of Levi or Matthew as he sat behind his tax-collecting table. So watch this IRS agent's interaction. A thousand dollars. Barry, your friend, is a high roller. You are hiding something. Wait a minute. No, wait. Um, uh, Can we just stick to the issue at hand? Oh... You almost have me. But you cannot declare offshore investment losses against future capital gains. Any child knows that. I'll have to ask my accountant about that. (laughs) Uh. Mr. Conrad, you, my friend, are being audited. No, 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 no. Call the 800 number. I release you. (sighs) So, Matthew, or Levi, was probably sitting at his desk, being used to being begged for more time, or lenience, or probably was often the target of much anger or hatred, um, Matthew would have been seen by the Jewish culture as a traitor um, because he was a Roman sympathizer working for them. He would have been seen almost in the way that the Jewish culture would see someone with leprosy as unclean and unfit to be around and his, their mentality towards him and their hatred for him because ultimately he was sleeping with the enemy. 
And on top of working for the Romans, tax collectors were seen as, whether or not they were, as corrupt and greedy. They were ultimately known for living off of the livelihood of others. They, were, they had this rapacious or ravenous mentality that was, was known about them for taking from those who were living and, and making it their own. And so they were these people that were seen in this lens, in this view, yet it was this man who Jesus decided to call out to be a part of this new society. doesn't make sense. I mean, to be honest, if I'm a, a Jewish person, knowing that a Messiah is coming, a rescuer is coming to bring rescue to his righteous people, then I would expect Jesus to come and not flip over tables in the temple, but to flip over Matthew's table. Right? Humiliate the man who has been the source of humiliation for so many. If I'm the, if I'm this, this Jewish person waiting for the Messiah to come, I want to see Matthew crushed publicly. Right? But yet again, Jesus did not do this. Jesus interrupts our natural way of thinking with a new way of thinking. This wasn't a one-time event for Jesus. Um, apparently his involvement with those who had um, less than a desirable reputation, gained him a reputation of his own. And Matthew, who wrote the Gospel of Matthew that we have, describes this reputation when he's in conversation with some Pharisees. They describe him in Matthew eleven nineteen as a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and other sinners. You can think of why this would be a problem. Jesus has established his identity as nothing less than God himself coming to rescue God's people, the people of God, this people that would be set apart for God. He's done miracles. He's cast out demons. He's healed the sick. He's taught with an authority that has come from nowhere else. No one's ever seen anything like this. And yet the people were probably like, This guy does all these things, yet he interacts with the most vile, sinful people. Jesus is crazy. A a God coming to rescue his righteous people, those are anything but righteous people. So you can see where there would be a problem among most people who were looking for this righteous deliverer and the fact that Jesus was fitting the bill for all of that, yet who he interacted with threw them for a loop. One particular group took special care to point out the errors of Jesus' way in Mark chapter 2, verse 16. But when the teachers of religious law who were Pharisees saw him eating with tax collectors and other sinners, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with such scum? And maybe it's just because Star Wars is coming out, but all I can hear them saying is, you rebel scum, right there, just in that way, and you would only understand that if you watch Star Wars, and if you don't, it's okay. It's all right. But the reality is, I mean, I've often put myself in the position of one of those people who was at that party and gone, man, if I ever, if do do they ever get a copy of the scriptures? Do they get to read this account and go, wait a minute, I was at that party. How dare he? I don't know. But they were very vocal about their opinion of these people. 
And the, the problem with this scum statement was not that the Pharisees had a desire to see these people stand up and not be living in the sin that they were in, not to see them be on their best behavior or morally uh, representable. They were most concerned with their association with those people. They did not want to be associated with those who had that type of a reputation, so they were actually more worried about themselves than they were the people that they were talking about. They did not want to be seen as unclean in their minds. And the reality is, Jesus hits them with an even more mind-bending statement in verse 17. When Jesus heard this, their statement, he told them, Healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners. And Jesus' statement is a game changer. We actually see that there are two groups of people in the world. Not divided in any other way, but those that think they are righteous and those who know they are sinners. There are no two other categories. There are two categories Jesus gives us in this instance. There are those who think they are righteous, who typically will be bent towards pointing at others, comparing themselves, entitlement, and the attack of others, thinking they are righteous. And there are those who know they are sinners, who often reflect confession, humility, and they are extenders of grace. Both of these thoughts thinking I am righteous or knowing I am, knowing I am a sinner cause two very different trajectories for our lives when it comes to Jesus. Now, you can cultivate, you can absolutely cultivate this thought that you are righteous. There are things that you can start doing right now to become more apt in your thinking that you are righteous. In fact, several years ago, we made a video that was an instructional video on how to think you are righteous. And we just titled it Pharisee, and so it's been like six or seven years, so we're just going to show it again. So, why do you think you can be a Pharisee? Let me just stop you right there before you bore me with your dribble. I talk, you listen. Because rule number one to being a Pharisee is always talk, never listen. Another way of saying always talk, never listen is H-B-N-A. Hear but never apply to myself. Let me give you an example. My daughter needs to hear this. My neighbor needs to hear this. But you never apply it to yourself. It's key to being a Pharisee. Poet. You're thinking of them right now. Even as you're watching this video, you're thinking of someone who needs to watch this video, aren't you? See how easy that is? There's one primary defense in the Pharisees' case to always talking, never listening, and I like to call that mastering the art of diffraction. Deflection. You know what I'm saying. It's like when the pastor's up there saying something like, we should really be more loving, more compassionate, more like Jesus. Not to me. Somebody else needs to hear this because I am a master of deflection. The main reason we can be confident in never applying something to our lives is because, let's just admit it, we're already experts in everything because that's the way we do things. As a Pharisee, always talk, never listen. Rule number two to being a Pharisee, you obtain greatness by making everyone else lower than you. I said everyone. I didn't say just some people. Doesn't that sound good? Everyone being lower than you? Come on, who wouldn't want that? 
Here are some ways to safeguard that you always make yourself greater than someone else. Never give them the benefit of the doubt. If they're having a bad day, assume they're always like that. Never walk a mile in their shoes. I got my own shoes. Why would I want to walk in somebody else's? My shoes are better than theirs. It just safeguards always feeling morally superior to everyone else. Rule number three, Pharisees hate and detest mercy given to someone who doesn't deserve it and didn't work for it. Because, come on, we work so hard for everything that we've earned and deserve. They didn't work for it. They didn't deserve it. Life is all about fair. Mercy and grace? Come on. Seriously? No, I don't think so. Ugh, it just makes me sick to my stomach. Earn it. Earn it. Should write a song called Earn It. Fourth and final and most important rule to being a Pharisee Always, always judge others. I don't think I go a day without judging. I mean, I don't even have to leave my house to get started. I get out of bed, I walk to the dining room table, I sit down, I grab my cup of coffee, and then, hmm, let's read about who's screwing the world up today. Look at this guy, he doesn't know what he's doing. This guy's gonna drive this thing into the ground. Are you kidding me? This guy's in charge? Come on! I, I'm, I'm, I think I'm addicted because people do things that they're addicted to to make them feel good. Judging others makes me feel awesome. I mean, really, judging others is so easy. I mean, this is so much easier. Look how the arm extends forward and points at someone else. This is just awkward. It, ow, I'm getting a cramp. It's so much easier to point at someone else than to point at yours. Ow, ow, cramp. Ow! The best Pharisees can judge someone they don't even know. I mean, you. I'm, I'm taking you for instance. I bet I could judge 10 things about you in under 10 seconds. You want to time me? One. Your haircut says you don't want anyone to know how much time you actually spend standing in front of the mirror, making it look like you don't spend any time standing in front of the mirror. Two. You're obviously not as smart as me. Three. Definitely not as good looking. Four. See how I'm nodding? I'm not even saying anything, but I'm judging you in my mind. I've already made you about this big. The last six, I'm just going to give you a series of raspberries. <laughs> just makes it easier. Added bonus to being someone who judges is that if you're always looking for something that's wrong, you're always gonna find it, therefore you're successful. A guaranteed successful day is finding what's wrong in others. This is the light bulb moment for those of you looking to be Pharisees, and it's very simply this statement. Everything that's wrong with the world is someone else's fault. So, when you're ready to step up and live by those four rules, you too can be a Pharisee. I hope to see you at our next meeting. Ah, <laughs> oh, it just makes you feel real good, doesn't it? Ah, I feel kind of gross after you say all those things and when you make that video, boy. Woo! So... In that specific, in this specific scenario, Jesus is addressing the thinking of those who think they have done enough to earn something from God, as if God owes them for their uprightness. This very thinking keeps them from looking on others with grace, looking on others to extend mercy, to show, uh, to show love or care for, because those people who they're looking upon have not earned it. In fact, those people have made their beds and in effect are having to lay in them. This is where the gospel is so different than anything the world has ever seen. Now, when you go to the doctor and they start giving you the quality of life advice, the stuff that says you need to cut back on or you need to cut out or you need to start fill in the blank, there are two ways of response. There's the first way, what? 
Doc, I am a physically fit specimen. WebMD said it. This blogger wrote saying the same thing I'm experiencing. And my food truck guy says I am perfectly fit. You don't know a thing, Doc. And so it's almost as if this, this self-evaluation you've given of yourself allows you to begin to attack the one who's supposed to give you the advice you need or the wisdom you need to move into health. That's the first way you can accept doctor's wisdom. Or the second one is, I had no clue. Right? I mean, the second way you respond is, wow, I had not even thought about this, that, this, to move towards health. You see, the Pharisees were the ones who said, I am the physically fit specimen of righteousness. And they began to attack the good physician. But Matthew understood something about Jesus that he knew he needed. How are the sick made strong? How do sinners repent? Do they keep doing the same thing or is there another way about it? One of the greatest walls to transformation is ignorance. And how is ignorance driven out? Truth. When Jesus presents truth, the ignorance that we may have been walking in begins to no longer be an excuse. Because not only was Jesus offering health and rescue for people who were physically suffering, He was offering the remedy for the sin sickness that dwells in us. And Jesus was not saying, it's all about, it's your unlocking your inner potential. He wasn't saying, what you need lies within. He's saying, what you need comes from me. What you need, you need to get from me. And that is real life. Now, to say that I know I am a sinner is not to wear a label and wallow in it. It is simply to acknowledge a need. I fall short of what Jesus is talking about. I am lacking what Jesus is expressing or what Jesus has. I don't have on my own and that only God can provide it. It's the beginning of what Jesus came to do. And if we're not paying attention, you and I will miss this. This key in Mark 2.17, we'll read it again. When Jesus heard this, he told them, healthy people don't need a doctor, sick people do. I have come to, say the word with me, I have come to what? Call, not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners. To know I am a sinner is not where God rubs our noses in our mistakes or to take on a lower, debasing, wretched label. It's to say, I'm not capable of correcting this broken relationship that I was meant to have on my own. I can't seem to get myself up by the bootstraps. I can't conquer these evil desires that are within me. I don't even know how or what to live in freedom looks like. And it's to admit that I've been trying to find the answer to all those things outside of Christ himself. Now, into keeping with this tax man or this business theme, you have one of two choices. With the righteous, those who think they are righteous, you can bring your balance sheet before God if you would like. You can totally do that. You can bring your balance sheet to God and say, look, God, I'm in the black. I made it out. I'm not in debt. Look at all the stuff I've been doing right here. This balance sheet says it. Look at that. Have you seen a better balance sheet taken care of? Or you can come with your collections notice. You can say, I can't pay this. 
There are two sheets you can bring. And those who think they are righteous will look to their balance sheets all day long, but those who know they are sinners will express this collections notice I can't pay. People recognize their sin not because Jesus condemned them in it. John 3.17 says this, God sent His Son into the world, what? Not to judge the world, but to save the world through Him. People recognize their sin. And when I'm saying sin, I mean life outside of God. Trying not to do it His way, but trying to do everything my way. My love for the lesser things, my love for my idols, or even myself more than anything else in the world. So people began to recognize their sin the more they just hung out with Jesus because what Jesus spoke about, expressed, and did was so different than anything that they had ever seen before in their lives. They recognized their sin because of what He was calling them out of. By spending time with Jesus, Matthew began to recognize all the things that he had been duped by. What I mean by that is Matthew was beginning to recognize all the things he was loving more than what he was made to love most. Think of all the things that he would have left behind when he stood up to walk out from behind that table. The gods of admiration among his peers. Tax collectors were very competitive. They competed with each other in their ability to tax people. Power that he held across the table from all those people who could not do a thing for themselves. And yet he crushed them more. Position. Man's praise. Crushing the competition. Status. Worldly comforts. One-upping everyone else. All of these things that had been the desire of his heart, Jesus was revealing these things will not you. In fact, they will kill you. And that's what sin does. Matthew, I, I assume, slowly began to see how all of the things he had been duped by were actually love for the temporary, love for the things that Jesus came to free us from. And in Jesus' calling, these were the things that Matthew would quickly begin to see as lesser than. These were the things Jesus was calling Matthew out of to walk away from. You see, Jesus doesn't just come to Netflix and chill. Like, I know that's what we think. We want our image of Jesus to be. He's just this dude. He comes and hangs out with sinners. And we love to use that excuse for why we don't see any transformation in our own lives. We love to go, Jesus just came to Netflix and chill. Friends, that's not why he came. He said it himself. He came to call those does that, does that mean I came to chill with? No, Jesus was on a mission. Jesus was always moving. He was always intentional, and he was always inviting people to do as he was doing. There's this idea that we love of Jesus that's just Jesus coming in, sitting down on my couch, loving me and my idols. Just loving me and my idols and being cool with it. Jesus just wants to Netflix and chill tonight. In fact, that's what I want him to do all the time. But the reality is Jesus came to do much more. To call us to what? For what? From what? And that phrase call is an interesting two-sided coin. It's to invite, to name. 
When we use the word to call someone something, there's an invitation and there's a naming, a purpose being given in Jesus' call. Both are taking place. We can actually look to most of the rest of the New Testament to see what, what, what exactly the call looks like. Just look, Romans 8, 29 and 30. For God knew his people in advance, and he chose them to become like his son, so that his son would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And having chosen them, he called them to come to him. So you've been called to him. In Galatians chapter 1, I am shocked that you are turning away so soon from God, who called you to himself through the loving mercy of Christ. Ephesians chapter 4. Therefore I, a prisoner for serving the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of your calling. And that doesn't mean your profession. That means you being called out of the kingdom of darkness, transferred to the kingdom of his dear son. You have been called by God Always be humble and gentle. Be patient with each other, making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. Make every effort to keep yourselves united in the Spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. For this, there is one body and one Spirit, just as you have been called to one glorious hope for the future. And in 2 Peter chapter 1, by His divine power, God has given us everything we need for living a godly life. We have received all of this by coming to know Him, the One who called us to Himself by means of His marvelous glory and excellence. And because of His glory and excellence, He has given us great and precious promises. These are the promises that enable you to share in His divine nature and escape the world's corruption caused by human desires. Matthew and those like him, notorious and reputable sinners, such scum, knew they had no shot at God, at real life, at righteousness, but they had been invited out of that. The entrapment of the world's corruption and the skewed desires that lie in our hearts, Jesus was making a way out of. But the other side of that coin is not not just of a calling, of inviting simply, but purposing. Jesus came to give purpose to and rename those who thought the game was over. Matthew's name might have been failure. Jesus was speaking hope. Matthew's name might have been traitor. Jesus was speaking belonging. Where my name might have been orphan, Jesus was calling me son. Now, as Nate and the band come, I want to make sure you understand this. It was at this calling that Jesus Jesus called Matthew from. You see, Matthew didn't just follow Jesus with his feet. He followed Jesus with his heart. Matthew wasn't just a lurker who walked along and just kind of followed Jesus. It was not just about the proximity to Jesus, but it was about the posture of his heart towards what Jesus had invited him out of. There are many in the, in the United States who call themselves Christ followers with their feet, but their hearts are far from him. We like to use the statement Christ follower to mean a number of things that ultimately just let us live however we want. And the reality is Jesus is saying, no, your heart is surrendered to me and your feet will go where I send you. That's what Jesus has invited us into. Anything other than a heart surrendered to Jesus 
is some idol we have created of Jesus. We like Jesus to be like we want him to be, not how he reveals himself to be. And the scripture not just invites Matthew to follow Jesus. Matthew came out behind from behind that table, but he also answered the other call of Jesus. Matthew, didn't, Matthew recognized the more to Jesus, and the more he was trying to find in that money, that power, that comfort, that status. Matthew was seeing Jesus is better. And in Matthew chapter 28, 18 through 20, Matthew penned these words as he heard them from the one who saved his soul. Jesus came and told his disciples, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you and be sure of this. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Matthew didn't just hear the call to come out from behind the desk. Matthew heard the call to go to the ends of the earth. And what we know about Matthew's life is he had a heart for his Jewish brothers and sisters to see that Jesus was the Messiah. But we also know about Matthew that is that he answered that call to go to the ends of the earth. In fact, he went to places that many historians and many other Christ followers were not willing to go. He went so far out that we don't actually know how Matthew died. There are a couple of church tradition stories that suggest that Matthew died of old age. But there are other Matthew tradition stories that say he was martyred in a, in a secluded place in Africa by having tent poles driven through him and then his head was cut off. The other church tradition story that, we've, that we, we have is that Matthew led a, a, a small village's king's family to the Lord. And in the rage of that king, the idea that there, that there would be another Lord, not him, Jesus being Lord, they put Matthew on a desk, on a table, tied him down, burned him alive. And as Matthew was being burned alive, he sang praises to God. And after Matthew died on that table, the king gives his life to the Lord and the entire small community around them comes to know Jesus. You see, Matthew understood that Jesus came for much more than Netflix and chill. Jesus came to call those who know they are sinners, to invite out of darkness, but to send with purpose in everything that they do. New life, new hope, new joy, not based on my works, but on Jesus Matthew didn't give his life to experience salvation. Matthew knew all that Jesus had called him out of and his desire for unreached people, for people to know that Jesus came to rescue sinners. Matthew was convinced that Jesus is that rescuer. Matthew answered the call to follow, but Matthew also answered the call to go. It's the same invitation you and I are given today. So this morning, we're going to close with some worship and we're going to be baptizing the service. Baptism is an acknowledgement, a confession that Jesus is enough, that he's done everything and that I desire all the days of my life to walk with him. And we do that among family. And so after this first song, we're going to be baptizing. And I just invite you as the body of Christ to pray. Pray for Dan as he makes this confession. 
But in the same vein, your heart. Do you have an idol of Jesus? An idea of Jesus that you love more than the actual Jesus of Scripture? Ask Him to show you where in your heart you've built up this idol of Jesus rather than allowing Jesus to be the Son of God. Come to call sinners home to give purpose and life to. Lord, we love you. And I just ask that in these moments you'd be honored and glorified because, Jesus, you are worth it. It's in your name we pray.